Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Talking Addiction and Recovery. And today I am joined by a special guest, Ms. Tara Carbert, who is the founder of Ambitious Addicts and is a recovering compulsive gambler. She's a recovery and life coach who helps women in long-term recovery from any addiction to help stop regretting the past and start believing in the future so that they can reach their goals both in continued recovery and in life beyond the 12 steps. So thank you, thank you for joining me, Tara. Thanks for having me here today. And I gotta say, Andrew, I'm a, you asked me kindly how to pronounce my name earlier and uh, I'm sitting here going, does he go by Andrew or AJ? Yeah, so it's actually <laughs> AJ. Andrew is a professional name because it's really hard to transition into uh, a name like AJ and then professionally because you sign papers and, and all the work that I do for like clinical supervision, my name goes on all documents, but AJ, I've been that way since second grade. So I have a really hard time getting rid of it. <laughs> all right, AJ. <laughs> Thanks so, for having me. Yeah. And you are a neighbor to the West from Minnesota. So it's great to have someone who is so close and such a lot of connections between Minnesota and Wisconsin. And it, it's great to connect with a professional from Minnesota as well. Yeah, always good to talk to friendly neighbors. Yeah, so part of when we talked before is to tell your story and part of your story, which I'm guessing leads into more of the ambitious addicts. So what part of your story do you want to share with us today? Yeah, I think we can we can certainly talk about um, my recovery journey and we can talk about my addiction. Um, you know, you're talking addiction and recovery. So I think it's appropriate to discuss both of those things. Uh, I am a compulsive gambler recovering since July of 2016. Um, I th if anyone's heard my podcast, I like to say that I have not placed a bet on anything but myself since that date. Um, the how I got there uh, is you know, much like most compulsive gambler story, it started off pretty innocent. I would go to the casino or participate in bar pull tabs or other things like that as just fun. You know, it's just something to do, something to keep me entertained. And as I continued to engage in the activity, it progressively became something that went from being fun to something I had to do, to something that was no longer a choice. And now that I've had a chance to learn a little bit more about the brain science behind it, it all makes sense. But when I was in the middle of it, I wasn't even thinking about it. I was really thinking about when can I go place my next bet? Where can I come up with the money to go to the casino to try to win again? And it really reached a point where I couldn't control myself. I would go and continue to walk up to the cashier counter and take more money out, more money than I could afford to spend. And on my last day gambling, I spent my entire paycheck in just a few hours and I still had bills to pay. I hadn't paid them out of that paycheck yet. Um, I was really devastated. I had a lot, lot of debt. I had sold things that mattered to me. I had been trying to put some blocks in place, like I reduced my cash card limit so I could only take out up to trying to control 100. it, manage it. Yeah, totally trying to control it. Just like just like everybody else does. And a lot of times I tried to control it and uh and you know, I would sneak right around myself and my my controls. Um 
So I, I, I had to get to that point where I was devastated and ready for change. Uh, and that moment came that last day when I, I spent my whole paycheck in just a few hours um, as my son was about to go into college. And it was really important to me as a mother to keep my promise that I was going to help pay for some of that schooling. If I kept gambling, there was no way that was going to happen. And the way that my decision-making had deteriorated, you know, I became somebody who lied to people very easily about my life and what I was doing with my time and why I needed money. If I was asking friends to borrow money and I'm not a liar, I don't want to be a liar, but I was a liar. Um, so I think just starting to look at, you know, how do I want to live my life? And am I living my life in the way that reflects, you know, what I want to leave in the world if I die? And the answer was no. Um, so I made a decision to stop gambling, made, made some calls for help and started going to 12 step meetings. And that's, that's how I found recovery. And part of your story that's already like stands out is you don't hear a lot of people talk about having problems with gambling and gambling addictions. Those are stories that are often, you know, hidden or they're, they're quieter, they're more silent. Do you find that even sharing your story of gambling, do you find it more difficult with those types of things because gambling is one that is still not addressed enough? Like when you hear stories of people with substance use issues, uh, I have people who are more open to me telling me about their pornography addiction, or they have people talk about their social media addiction. I have a lot more people being open and sharing those stories than I ever have with gambling. Hmm. I, I do find <laughs> it's fine. One of the things that triggers my gambling or triggered my gambling was this feeling of not belonging. Um, and it's funny that I'm encountering the same thing in the addiction world. <laughs> so for, and I shouldn't even laugh about it because gambling, gambling addiction is serious. I mean, one of the highest suicide rates of all addictions compared to substance use disorders and yet we don't talk about it a lot. You don't hear those stories a lot. And I think you know, maybe that's related to how secretive people are about this addiction and how well hidden it is. You do a great job of bringing awareness. You talk about gambling maybe more than I've seen a lot of other um, podcasts bring it to light. Um, I think there's this idea out there that you could just stop going to the casino and if you understand addiction and you understand how addiction works, you know, yeah, that's all fine and good until you're addicted. Right. And that's and different where then someone can't like that's, they're no longer the can control it or can manage it or do it socially. Like they are now into that part of they can't. And for someone with an addiction, you, you can't go back. Yeah. It doesn't feel that. like a choice anymore at some point. Once you're addicted, it, it's almost like you're your mind believes that you have to do it or something's gone very wrong. <laughs> so. And to it sounds tricky. Like, as you mentioned, the different gambling activities you engaged in, it also seems so tricky for people to even realize sometimes that what they're doing is gambling because you talk about playing certain things, doing certain things, you know, with drugs, it's pretty easy to say that's a drug. It's pretty easy to say that's alcohol. It's pretty easy to say that's pornography, even though that's getting a little bit blurred. But gambling is not one that I think people 
will easily identify that that's what they're doing, that they get like a scratch off ticket. Like this is an example where I know people who've gotten scratch off tickets as like a birthday present or like a St. Nick stocking gift. Right. So when that person like plays that in their mind, they might not even think that they're actually gambling. Right. That's same thing with fantasy sports teams. Right. But that's tricky. Like that's a very tricky thing about gambling that is not as much of a part that we deal with, with other things. Right. Well, and there's a lot of things I may think about the work environment and how much of the team activities center around some kind of gambling thing. Raffles. You wouldn't think that that's gambling, but to some degree, if you're buying a raffle ticket with the chance to win, you are gambling. And for the compulsive gambler, any chance to win is kind of a thing that they then <laughs> just want to do. They, they want to do that thing. They give them the chance to win. And when I was early on in my recovery, there was a, a work thing going on. I think the lottery was really, really high. And there, you know, the whole, the whole office is, you know, I'll put in a buck, I'll put in a buck, I'll put in a buck. And I was like, no, thanks. And it looked at me like I was insane. And right. I'm like, listen, I know it's only a dollar, but I'm a recovering compulsive gambler. And I just can't go down that path where I'm betting on anything. And it's interesting. Uh, you know, you talk about this in relation to substance use and the discussion within recovery community, even within the community of substance use treat treatment providers. Mm-hmm. I went to a recovery coaching course to get my recovery coaching credential. And in that course, there was a contest. Yeah. I think workplace is a great example of that. Even among professionals of we become very aware of things with like substance use or like alcohol, you know, like if a company is having a event or something and they might realize that someone might not want to go to it or they decide not to, it's a lot different when all of a sudden that company sends out an email saying, Hey, everyone, here's a free entry to play in a, you know, March Madness bracket or Super Bowl bracket, you know, like it's almost encouraged to where if you don't do it, there's like this feeling of left out, but we wouldn't do that with other stuff. We wouldn't bring a bottle of booze to work. Cause we'd be like, well, no way. This is like, we know those things are not good for some people and they're not right in that type of environment with gambling. That seems just to be ignored. Yeah, I think there's a complete lack of awareness. And how do we help elevate that awareness if we don't talk about it? So it's a, I think it's important to talk about it even within the recovery community. Um, I'll give you another example. I was in a clubhouse room. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with or using clubhouse, but I was in a in a room full of addicts and alcoholics and introduced myself as a compulsive gambler. And somebody in that room shared with me that they were a former psychotherapist and they never understood how gambling disorder made it on the DSM. Wow. And what does, what does unmanageability look like if you're a gambler? Yeah. that is. And once I described <laughs> it, it was like, Oh, okay. That sounds a lot like most addictions, you know, but yeah. neglecting all, you know, neglecting responsibility, not paying my bills on time, not, you know, not giving, 
my full attention to the things that mattered in my life, my family, my friends, same as it looks like when you're addicted to a substance. Um, the unmanageability is really the signal that there's something going on that's, uh, that's truly a disorder for someone. And that's why too, trying to explain the, the science behind it too, with the impact on the brain, because I, I do believe a lot of people have an even more difficult time understanding gambling because with drugs, you know, someone can say, well, yeah, when they're ingesting a substance or using a, a substance that that substance has creates changes and it interferes and it, it impacts parts of the brain that deal with impulse control with reward circuitry. Like that is something that some people, when you break it down to, they can understand that some people don't believe that happens with gambling, but gambling does still have that brain impact. It can, it can change how the brain is wired. And we've seen like MRI images of what someone's brain looks like when they're looking at like a slot machine or they're looking at a roulette table, it lights up the same way as someone who's using cocaine. Right. You don't even have to win to get the light up. Right. <laughs> Almost. A, a, I think I read a study that said a near miss produced the same level of dopamine as a win, if not yes. more. Yep. So it's not even about winning, even losing can fire that same, that rush, that dopamine and that's another thing that people don't understand. Like, well, how are they feeling that way about losing? And it's, it's not just about money. It's not just about winning and losing. There's all that other stuff that it becomes exactly what you talked about that we do relate to with like substance use. Right. And even in the recovery community, you know, when you shared about what that was like, it seems to me if we like put a family systems lens in this, that you know, the drug use gets like the scapegoat or the, the problem child. Like they definitely get the most attention. They cause a lot of the havoc. Um, a lot yeah. of resources get pulled to that because of, you know, the, the noticeable devastation, right? Right. Gambling seems to be the lost child. Yeah, I would like, agree It's just that. like forgotten. I would agree with that. not completely forgotten, but, but forgotten by many. Yeah. And I, you know, I think you had an episode where you talked about the invisibility of gambling, or maybe that was a social media post, but that's it, right? You can't smell us gambling. You can't, maybe you can smell the smoke from a casino, (laughs) (laughs) but you don't see a stagger in the walk. You don't, you don't smell it. If that person's managing their own finances, you have no idea what kind of devastation has been created in their life. But most problem gamblers probably have a messy home and they probably have fractured relationships and they're probably not spending quality time with the people they they love and care about. They're probably spending what they would have spent with those people at a casino or engaged in a, I mean, now we've got gambling at your fingertips on your phone. Well, that's why I tell people when I talk with other professionals, like licensed marriage and family therapists, when I talk with counselors who are working with individuals and when money comes up as a problem if if money is an issue somewhere I always say you got to at least ask about gambling you've got to ask if there's anything gambling related because they will come in there and talk about money issues but they won't come in there and say well our money issues are because of gambling 
there's gonna be a lot of other things that are being explained as to why it is like oh poor spending or but if you don't really ask about it it's not a very forthcoming explanation yeah are you gambling longer than you're planned to and are you spending more than you can afford those two questions can reveal quite a bit about whether or not somebody's at risk or has a problem gambling disorder and yeah. that yeah i think that you know you look at look at the screening that we're doing at the doctor's office they're asking us if we feel safe at home. They're asking us about our drinking, smoking, drugs. You're asked about all of that. But you're not asked anything about your finances or anything about gambling or food or sex. But that like little two question survey could reveal a problem and help somebody get get support if they're struggling to control their gambling. Yeah. And that's where I've noticed that's, that's always scares me with gambling and that it, it's already been so far behind where everything else is. I know when I, I've recently gone to doctor's appointments, they've just started asking about, um, they ask about depression. Now, they, they do. don't go, they don't go through a whole list of all the, you know, the why different, yeah. different, mood disorders and all the different mental health, like they don't go through the whole list. Cause that, that's, that would be a lot, but they make sure now to ask about depression. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really good as someone who also does like mental health therapy. I think that's great that they're at least asking about, they're at least making it a point, but then all of a sudden, right. yeah, where will gambling be with that? Like right. gambling might not ever get that way if people don't start asking, or is it going to be another 10, 20 years until gambling also gets that type of attention because mental health should have gotten it a long time ago. Yeah. We don't do any preventative mental health care, do we? Yeah. I mean, they always ask about these, do you drink alcohol? Do you smoke cigarettes? They don't even ask about, do you use drugs? You know, I don't know who's going to answer that, but it's usually alcohol, <laughs> cigarettes. Now it's depression. They do ask about illegal substances here in Minnesota. Oh, so that's good. It's yeah. good to hear that. Yeah. So there's just a lot to ask, you know, and to, to find out in other ways they can figure that out or other ways they can do that. You know, there's a lot that's going on, but if you don't and I think ask, you're right. A lot of people lie on those surveys yeah. too, but for somebody who's starting to wonder if they have a problem, they may tell the truth and they may tell their doctor. Um, I remember having a conversation with my doctor um, about the drinking and like asking, cause I'm more of a, I'm not anymore. Actually. I, I stopped drinking in um, September with the exception of a glass of champagne on, on Christmas. Um, but I remember the doctor, you know, I listed and I was like, so is it considered binge drinking? If like, just, you know, on what is binge drinking? You know, and she, she said it, you know, four to five drinks within a 24 hour period or something like that. And I was like, well, does that count if like I went out Saturday night and I had a beer or two and then I went to brunch the next morning and did like mm -hmm. patio dinner and I had wine with dinner and that, that's like five drinks. The She's like, yes, that counts. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. But a lot of people lie about their use. I, I don't know why, right? A lot of people, but a lot of people do lie about their use to their, their doctor as well. Yeah. And that's always something too, that you kind of always imagine that someone's going to lie about it or minimize it, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes 
in the substance use field, they say whatever they tell you, kind of multiply that by two, and that's probably closer to the real answer. So if they, they tell you they only drink two nights a week, it's probably more like four nights. Four. Um, but at least asking about it makes the other makes people aware that we we do notice it's an issue that we do notice that it's something that needs to be asked and you know who knows that for the one person that might be waiting for someone to ask that or for them to be like yeah you know what i do and right it, like to someone that could be what helps get them treatment it absolutely could it could be the thing you know what doc yeah maybe i'm doing too much of this what can i do right yeah so one of the questions I wanted to ask you about was the ambitious addicts mm-hmm. title. Yeah. The word ambition. Yeah. Totally grabbed my attention. Okay. Because out of all like the, the words we use in, in treatment and recovery, you know, authenticity, genuineness, you know, we talk about all different things that you need to be and need to do ambition is one that is I'm gonna be honest one you don't hear a lot about and I I'm starting to think it it should be and it needs to be so where did the ambition part come from with you having that be such an important part of your the title yeah so I was in in my recovery about year and a half almost a year and a half and I'd been having some new thoughts about transitioning and transforming my career. And in my recovery circle, there were a couple, not all, but there were a couple of people who I shared this idea for my first business with, and it wasn't ambitious addicts. That was a different business. And I kind of got this, Ooh, be careful. Like you got to play it safe. Well, I've always been somebody who has goals and, and, and works to achieve things. And the definition, I'll just give the definition that I love is just a strong desire to do or achieve something. That's what ambition is. And I have had that within me from a young age, somebody who wanted to get good grades or try out for a competitive team or achieve promotions at work. I've, I've had this ambitious side of myself. And here I had people in my recovery community saying to me, Oh, be careful. And I started to question, like, do I, do I really want to believe that, that I have to shut that side of me off because it's a risk to my recovery? Because I'll tell you what, I was pretty damn ambitious about going to the casino. I mean, I lied to go to the casino. I'm, I, (laughs) I drove through treacherous snowstorms that could have killed me to get to the casino. I, and I also had this risk taker side of myself that if I'm not gambling and that's part of who I am, I don't want to shut that off. And so I intentionally chose ambitious addicts because of what I want to help women in recovery do. I want to help them believe that their dreams are possible for them, even if they have this history of addiction, that the recovery can come with their with their ambition. And it's not an either or proposition because I think there's a lot of individuals in the world, not all, again, I'll emphasize not all who do warn people who are in recovery about going after big things, because if they don't achieve it, then what are you going to slip? Right. And, um, maybe that is a risk 
for some people, but I don't believe that that message needs to come from outside. And if people want to be ambitious, either in recovery or in their life, I don't want to be part of the, the voices that are telling them not to believe in their dreams. Yeah. I mean, the, the part that would stand out to me is there's a difference between ambitious and unrealistic expectations. Yes. So, and I think people probably confuse that. Like you don't want to set people up for, for failure. You don't want people to, you know, work towards things and want to follow their dreams and and not being able to do it. Well, that's, that's creating unrealistic expectations. That is something that needs to be addressed. I think that's a, a big fault in a lot of things is when people set things that they cannot achieve or they, they don't create steps or goals to help along the way. And one of my examples was I, I had a guy who, this reminds me of him, is he wanted to start his own company after getting out of treatment. Mm-hmm. And and I was like, well, what, what are your ideas or what do you, what do you have to, to are start we talking long-term treatment? That? This is, this was three months. Okay. <laughs> so prior to three months, he was in jail for a couple more months. He mm-hmm. didn't have a penny to his name. Mm-hmm. You know, his, his, his relationships were super strained and his, his goal though, was he wanted to start his own business as soon as he got out of treatment. And part of it was, you know, encouraging him that there's nothing wrong with wanting to do that, but what's the likelihood you're going to be out of here day one and you're going to have a business created and doing all that. My concern is if that's your idea from day one, there's going to be a lot of, you know, shortcomings to that. There's gonna be some, some doubt, some anger, some resentment, some, yeah, recovery is full of it because I'm not having my own business now, but more realistic is you just got to get a job. Just, you got to get a job, start, start working somewhere, write down your ideas, put your ideas down for starting a business. But that's, I don't think you need to take away ambition because of that. I don't think you need to take away, you know, desire to do it. I think ambition is a good question to ask people where is your ambition? Right. Where, where is your desire? Where is your wanting this? Mm-hmm. Because that's the way recovery really only works by, by wanting it. Right. And that, so I think ambition is. I can, how do we I, harness that ambition? The ambition we had for our addiction, right? The one that we were willing to do things that we never thought we would do in order to feed our addiction. How do we harness that into something positive that helps us move forward in our life? And there's, you know, we talk about starting a business. There's, you need some mental fortitude there, right? And I, early in recovery may or may not be the right place for somebody to do that, but I don't want to take away that dream from that person, right? How do we break this down into workable steps? What are you going to need to get there? What, what has to be done in order for that business to get lunch? Let's break it down and let's make a plan much like you have to make a plan for how you're going to stay sober. Yeah. And I think ambition is actually one that we talk about what lengths people went to do things with their addiction, you know, like Mm -hmm. the, how, how they were willing to go down to the city 
three times a day to get their drugs. We're willing to, to get through the snow to go to the casino. But then when it comes to going to a meeting that's five minutes <laughs> up the road, there's a ton of reasons why you can't. Yeah, but, and why we don't have time and all yeah. that good stuff. I don't feel like it. Yeah, but <laughs> the big difference where I think ambition can help people, and I'm curious to know your thought on this, is a part of me doesn't want people to use the same things to accomplish recovery. I don't want people to rob Peter to pay Paul like they did with their drugs. I need them to find ways to, to become financially responsible. So we want them to, to have some same drive and desire, but we don't want people to rely on the same things necessarily, because sometimes you know, criminal thinking was used, manipulation was used, like sometimes right. some some behaviors that we don't want in recovery. Right. We want that to stay with it. But ambition, it doesn't have to be looked at in that kind of way. Yeah, we don't. Right. And that's kind of my my whole point is like, let's not let's not mute or eliminate the desire. Your desire's there. And I think that desire is there for a reason like not desire for a drug, but when we think about desires for things that serve us, I believe in a higher power. Can we call that a calling? If you want to start a business, that idea planted in your mind is a gift. And if you don't unwrap it in some way, and that takes steps, right? You got to take the bow off. You got to take the paper off. You got to open the box, right? It's not... It's not an overnight thing. So I think it's, that's why I choose to support women who are one or more years into their recovery is I want to know that they've got the tools, not mastered, but at least enough practice with the tools of choosing sobriety that I'm not going to put their sobriety at risk in partnership with them and helping them go to that next thing. Right. I, I want to know that they've got, they've got at least a year of managing urges and, and making better choices. And if they're in a 12 step program, well, that probably doesn't matter what form of recovery they're in, but looking at like, how do I want to show up in the world? And once they've identified some of that, I think they're ready to, to go for, for bigger goals, but somebody coming right three months out of treatment, I probably would not take them on as a client. I mean, as of right now, it's a requirement for me that they have one or more years free from their drug of choice. Or and ambition, ambition could have, as I think about this, this client, Ambition could have really helped him because ambition could have motivated him to just work any job to just yes. start making money. That's it. Motivation or ambition could have been working a job no matter what it was and spending time still thinking about what he would want to do. Ambition could have been used to help him and motivate him to look into what it would take to do all that. So ambition could have been the thing to help carry him along that way, not looking at it as, well, that's gonna cause him to fall flat or cause him to have high hopes and then be you know, in despair. But if I could have asked him, where, where do you think your ambition is for this? Mm -hmm. And then maybe have him talk to me a little about where it was. And maybe if we could talk about, you know, put some ambition into things you know you need to do, but maybe you don't want to do. Yeah. And I can give you a real life 
uh, I know we're getting close to time, so I'll try to make this quick, but real life example from my own, right? So I, my first business was a recruiting business. That was my professional history. I had a history of, of high, high earning, you know, by most people's definition in that profession. And, you know, I decided to walk away from the security of that to pursue my ambition of starting my own recruiting company. It failed. I failed. And in a good way, I learned so much about myself in that first year. And one of the key things that I learned was that I don't really love business to business sales. The time I should have been, should have, <laughs> I'm shooting myself. The time <laughs> that was carved out for business development and B2B lead generation and the things you got to do to make a recruiting business work and get off the ground, I was avoiding completely. I did not enjoy them. I didn't get any pleasure from them. And instead of spending my time there, which would have been growing my business, I was giving away free resume advice and kind of free career counseling, if you will, and volunteering and giving away my knowledge at no, no charge. So I first decided I was going to do career coaching that made logical sense in my brain. Well, I've been a recruiter forever. I know the, I know the job search game. And I started coaching people who were in the job search phase or maybe had lost a job. Um, I have a, a thought work model that I use to, to train, to train people to coach themselves. And as I was coaching those students, I was not bringing in money through my recruiting business. In fact, I'd lost a lot of money and the easy answer would have been go get a contract recruiting job, work 40, 50 hours a week doing that thing, burn yourself out trying to launch this thing in the background, but have full-time earning. And instead I decided to do shipped shopping and Grubhub and DoorDash. <laughs> I am corporate raised career wise, right? I'm not a delivery driver. I've never been a delivery driver, but I wanted so bad to do coaching and to help individuals that I was willing to do whatever it took Yeah, in a healthy way. And, and just, not disregard, but kind of set other people's opinions aside and say, no, like, I really believe that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm willing for other stuff to be hard in order to achieve my goal. So like you were saying about your client, if his ambition was to do this thing and his why, his why he wanted to do it was powerful enough to let go of the ego and to take the, the job that maybe another person wouldn't take, because of his background, because his eye was on the future and not on what are people going to think of me if I'm, you know, a janitor or whatever, a delivery driver. Yeah. A lot of people tell me I was crazy. Like, you're crazy. You're so much smarter than that. I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't, yeah, that's, that's nice. I don't want to do, I don't want to use my brain power 40, 50 hours a week for someone else's goals. I want to have an easy, a job that doesn't take much of my brain power, allows me to flex my own schedule and, and is enough to pay the bills so that I can create what I want to create. And here That's I am great. doing it. Yeah. yeah. And that also points to like ambition also can work with like humility. Yeah. Like I think that... the, the word itself has a lot, some negative connotation to it. Cause I, there, there maybe is this assumption that people will run people over to get what they want. And that's not, that's not how I've done it. No, I'm going to, I'm going to start asking more people ab about their ambition. And I'm, I'm interested to see where, where that goes. Cause I think it could be a really big missing piece for some people and whether that's, they're still using 
or they're early in their recovery and they're struggling because we know that's a whole nother stage of getting sober and, and being in recovery and abstinence. And, you know, a lot of people kind of get stuck in that comfort zone, no man's land. So I think ambition is going to be a really great way to, to try and help with, with some of these situations. So, so amazing reasoning and answer for why that's such an important piece in what you are trying to do and doing, which I do want to get into as well, because of letting people know what to expect from like ambitious addicts and what is it that you are trying to build and doing. So, so give us a little breakdown about ambitious addicts. Yeah. So from a coaching services, so I've got the podcast, which is a place where people can just get bite-sized tidbits of, of advice, if you will, about how to, how to pursue their ambitious side. Um, and then my coaching service today is I offer one-to-one coaching to women in long-term recovery who've got a goal. Maybe they're feeling a little bit stuck and they're not, they're not understanding what's in their way. And I created this because I hit a similar roadblock. I mentioned, you know, the recruiting company had a failing, if you will, but in order to get over that hump and really look at myself and what I wanted, I had to back up and I hired a life coach and I learned a thought work model. Um, and you, I know you, you do a lot of, um, reflective, you know, tips about how to uncover what your thinking pattern might be doing for yourself. So I learned this thought work model and I adapted it for my own needs. It's called the search and find model. So I've got this proprietary model. And what I do with that is I start with every student kind of in one, four key areas, believing in themselves, navigating change relationships with others or moving from awareness to action. So we start foundationally with one of those four, whatever resonates with where they're at the most. And then I design with them based on their own goals and their own drug of choice and their own situation and learning through that first month together. Um, the rest of the, the 12, the rest of the sessions are really designed with them and for them. So they get workbooks and they get one-on-one coaching with me and they have some pretty tremendous breakthrough. The goal of that at the end of it is that they have the tools they need to coach themselves out of almost all situations, uh, if they're feeling stuck. So that's the that's my breakthrough coaching. And then I'm building some video coaching, um, to take those smaller, uh, those smaller sections, kind of like believing in you, it's just a digital course to make it affordable for anyone who wants it, but maybe isn't ready for breakthrough coaching. That's great. And there's a lot of stuff there and the podcast is great. I know it's, it's a newer thing, but it's already starting out really great. I've listened to episodes. I love the idea of focusing on women. When we talked before, This, I I shared to you that in Wisconsin, I know we do, we struggle with resources for women. We Mm -hmm. struggle with things that are specific for women. And it's good to see more resources that are, are available for women and trying to help with, with those specific issues. So it's, it's good to know another resource out there that people can reach out to for that in the variety you're building with it as well. Yeah. Thanks, AJ. I'm I'm really excited. My, my first business had a, had a focus on supporting women in highly male populated fields and, you know, recovery is kind of a highly male populated place when you're in 12 step rooms, at least for GA. (laughs) 
Yeah. Even yeah. oh yeah, that's even a whole another issue of <laughs> we could um, talk for a long time about that. <laughs> yeah, the the idea of and that that was the same with even in with drinking and drugs too. I think drugs kind of changed that where we started seeing like a, a lot of people searching for help with like the opioids and but even alcohol struggled with that. I remember a guy told me his wife was an alcoholic. He was the, the loved one of an alcoholic. And they went to a meeting where Al-Anon was in one room and then the AA meeting was in another room. Mm-hmm. He walked into Al-Anon and he was the only guy in there. And they told him he was in the wrong meeting. <laughs> they assumed they, they, he was they, the alcoholic. They assumed he was the alcoholic. Oh. Like, like, oh, where's your wife? Like, it, this is for her. Like, she doesn't have the problem. You must have the problem. And, you know, I think with when stuff with the opioid, you know, epidemic really hit, you know, we saw a bunch of different people, young, old, you know, how that impacted them. But I, I think gambling gets stuck in that too, where the idea too of like a, a woman having a, a gambling issue is not seen as much. It's, it's probably looked at more of a, oh, like a guy has a problem, but I, there's a lot of women that struggle with it too. Yeah. I'm really fortunate to have in, in my own recovery community, a healthy representation of women. Um, but when I talk to women with gambling challenges across the country, you know, their first couple of meetings, my first meeting was, was actually all men. Um, but that their, their meetings are, you know, predominantly men in the rooms. Um, and so hopefully just more voices. I, I did an interview with brokegirl.cr from Instagram. She's, she's, uh, she's out there trying to do support for women with gambling issues. And I think, you know, just supporting women, supporting women in general is just a mantra that I wholly believe in. And if I can support women in recovery, icing on the cake for me. Yeah. And also other people, you know, and, and other organizations, individuals needing to support it as well and and provide more resources, have more resources, looking at what women need to not not just what we think is more of a guy's issue or it happens more to guys. It, it doesn't matter. To me, it's always that one person, that one person in my office or that one person that comes to get help that to them, this is likely destroying their life or it's getting very close to that. Yeah. And, and with gambling, often they seek help when it's like pretty destructive and devastated. Yeah. It's, it's not usually a, I lost a little bit of money here or I had a bad weekend. It was like some significant consequences have happened where calls to hotlines and coming to seek help is, is pretty bad. Yeah. I waited till it got pretty bad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No retirement. Like everything, everything I, I worked my life to earn gone. But I think that's important because we're seeing even, I think more younger women engaging in like video game playing, gambling, even I think gambling has been on the rise among younger aged women. I just look at all the little, you know, purse. I think about like this purse bingo thing, right? Mm-hmm. That's a that's a new thing that's yeah. happening, and 
What a great way to get the women in to the bar and to playing bingo to get a purse. Maybe. Well, I've heard more, I've heard more, you know, females doing um, fantasy sports. Mm-hmm. I've heard a lot more doing other types of, you know, pools and, and, and betting on stuff like that. Yes. So I think it's also important to find some way. And I don't know if this is something that's on your future idea, but there's also got to be some way of reaching younger audiences of women about gambling too. Yeah. You know? And I think it's, it starts with just people, people need to keep talking about it. We need to talk about it. We need to, I need to tell my story to those younger women, because when I started gambling, was it, I was in, you know, I was really young when I was exposed to gambling and I started going to casinos when I was 18. And there were times in my twenties that it was a problem. And I was able to stop on my own at that time, just because I didn't have the money. But as I got older and I had more credit, it, it just became like we talked about, it became something I couldn't, I couldn't not do it. Right. And so I was just like on a mission. I got to find money. I got to find money. Money became my drug, the way to feed the machines or the table or turn it into chips. Um, and when I couldn't gamble with real money, I was playing fake blackjack on my phone. So I think the earlier we can, you know, early intervention is going to be important. And I think with the number of kids who are, who are gaming in, games that have loot boxes and have prizes associated with them, there's the risk is even younger. Um, you can't necessarily prevent a 16 year old from playing a game that has a loot box. And if you start asking parents about the money that those kids are spending on the games, you know, they're, they're seeing a problem there. It's just, it's a precursor in my opinion for, for what could happen if that person then finds a betting venue. Yeah. And we just, yeah. and we can't just hold this old belief of it's, it's guys and men who are playing video games and gambling. Yeah. Right? That's definitely not the case. No. And I think it's, I think it's catching up more and it's unfortunate that it, it wasn't talked about for however long it's been around. It's been around for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And those are things that we could have noticed earlier there could have been more of those resources and help out there to address some of these things especially kind of where we're going now with technology combination and gambling and and all those kinds of things so we can't be stuck believing that it's just you know the guys and the men gambling video games young women too I mean, teenagers, young, young adults, college age, young women who are, you know, in that young adulthood and then across the whole life spectrum really Mm -hmm. is there's risk factors for everyone, but we can't ignore that for this population. No, we can't. When you think about the the appeal of the casino as a social place to hang out for girlfriends, you know, I mean, that's kind of how it's marketed to it's marketed that way to us, have a girl's weekend, have fun. You know, it's marketed to us as, as a place where you go have fun with your ladies. They have spas, (laughs) you know, there. So it is, it's no longer like it was when I was taught, you know, I was, I was taught poker and a VFW sitting next to my grandpa, right. It was the guys gambling and I was just his sidekick. Right. And I, I think that is a very old school way of looking at gambling. That was just something the guys did with one another. Cause now it's everybody doing it. 
Right. Yeah. So important. There's there's a lot of stuff we could talk about. So yeah, I, we could I probably stay really, on the phone for hours. Or yeah, I, <laughs> I really appreciate taking the time to to talk about your story, which I give a lot of credit for sharing and talking about because because gambling stories are are rare. They're they're not heard as much. So I, I'm thankful that you shared it here so that other people might be encouraged to share their story or other people might be encouraged to ask people about gambling and the the work you're doing with ambitious addicts is great i'm looking forward to seeing what happens more with it and and where it goes because it's definitely in a growth stage right now so that's yeah me too yeah me too i have all all sorts of ideas i'm exploring like do i want to go you know do i want to go do workshops at long-term treatment facilities and you know use the peer recovery specialist credential that way like i'm i yeah i have all these i have all sorts of ideas i just got to decide which what which way i want to go with it but it's been a really fun journey getting to this point and meeting people like you and i can't thank you enough for your advocacy and awareness it means a lot um it is important and uh i can't thank you enough for what you're doing with your podcast yeah and the the ambitious part is i'm i'm really looking forward to to tying that in and i'm looking forward to connecting with you again and sharing with you how that works. Cause I think the ambitious part of recovery is definitely something that can help a lot of people be very useful. I don't think it has to be something that needs to be afraid of or worried about in, in the way that it can be used, I think can really help a lot of people finding their ambition for their recovery. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. Let me know how it goes. I found it kind of fun just to ask a couple guests, like, do you consider yourself to be ambitious? And it's, it's probably a 50, 50 split. Like, yeah, I would, I did all these things and I was always this. And I, I think when you find a lot of high functioning, if you will, addicts um, would identify as ambitious. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you can learn more about what you do at ambitiousaddicts.com. You yep. can listen to your podcast, with the, which is Ambitious Addicts Podcast. And then you can also get in touch with you through uh, Instagram, which is Ambitious X Addicts, and then Facebook page, Ambitious and Addicted. So if you want to learn yeah. more about um, what she does, the services available, and, and gain more knowledge from her, please check out those resources. There's, there's plenty of there. So once again, Thanks for joining me. This was amazing. And I really look forward to what we can do in the future. Yeah. Thanks, AJ. Looking forward to to hear how some of your clients respond to the word ambitious. Yeah, I will definitely let you know. All right. So as always, thanks for listening and continue to follow us, both of us on our podcast. It's always helpful to, to leave a review and a comment. It, It means a lot to us. We read them. We learn from them. So we want to know what people think. So check mine out. Check out Ambitious Addicts too, because we love to hear from our listeners. So thanks for listening.